Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. You know, there are a variety of ways to approach the book of Revelation, last book in your Bible. There are a whole bunch of ways that you could come at it, a whole lot of different approaches. Now, I have, I've got to tell you, I have no special insights about this monumental book. Uh, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. There are prophecy gurus who seem to know a lot about the book of Revelation and can unravel it for you, and by the hour they can pour out their expert opinions and explain all of the symbols with incredible confidence. There are people like that. I am not one of them. Of course, we could always ask the question of those who have all the answers about this or any book, and how do you know that? And very often, especially when it comes to a book like the book of Revelation, the expert opinions really boil down to good guesses in a lot of cases, educated guesses, good guesses. But it occurs to me that there may be a better way to look at this book than simply relying on good guesswork. I, I am no different than anybody else. I am the sum of all of the experiences I've ever had, especially those that I paid attention to. I'm the sum of all of those experiences. I'm the sum of all of the people that I have ever known. And I'm the sum of all of the things that I've ever read. Now, the first category the experiences that I've had that I've paid attention to, I've got almost no control over those. And I've got slightly more control over the people that I've known. But I have almost total control over the things that I choose to read. So here at the beginning of this brand new year, there's a little nugget for you to think about, especially if you plan on things being different in the next 12 months, and that's how you do it. It's the sum of your experiences that you pay attention to, the people you know, and the things you read. Anyway, I've got no special insights into this last monumental book of Scripture, Revelation. I want you to turn there with me. We'll be in the second chapter today. But I've got no special insights. I want you to know that going into it. And this book, understanding it, is like any other book. It's all in how you read it. Now, of course, there's a great deal of controversy, you know that, over the meaning of the book of Revelation and the things that happen in it. When will all of these things begin to unfold? Well, there are different opinions about that. How about Jesus coming back? Is it going to be now or later? Again, there are a variety of ideas. Is the Antichrist, is he a real person? Are the seven judgment trumpets, are they the same as the seven vials of judgment. Where is that great battle of Armageddon? Where is it going to take place? Is the Antichrist a real person again? What about his little buddy, the false prophet? Who is that? Can you identify that? And maybe the biggest question as you approach the book of Revelation is when will Jesus return? Will it be before or during or after this terrible time called the tribulation? And exactly what is that, by the way? Well, there's a lot of controversy around all of that and more. I do notice when it comes to Jesus' first coming, 
A lot of speculation about his second coming, but when it comes to his first coming, I, I do notice that nearly all of the world and all of the religious experts missed that one. They didn't get that one right. So I don't have a whole lot of confidence that all of the experts have got all of the second coming right either. You know, there are lots of notions about this book, but let me give you three things that we know for sure, you can learn from sure, for sure from this wild book. One, God is in control. God is in control. As you work your way through this book, that reality comes down heavy and hard. God is in control. No matter how chaotic our lives may look, God is in control. That's true for the believer. It's not true for everybody, but God is in control. The second thing we learn from this book for sure, and it's no speculation here, is salvation is for all who will receive it. Anybody that comes to Christ, he won't turn away. That's fact. No matter what the past is or what you're involved in right now, if you turn to Christ, he will not turn you away. Salvation is for all who receive it. And the third thing we learn for sure is Jesus will return. He is coming back. Now, Revelation begins with a series of letters to seven different churches. Each of those churches is now extinct. It's dead, long dead. There are many churches that go extinct every week, every month. In our nation, 4,000 churches disappear. Hard to believe, isn't it? So it's not an ancient phenomenon that churches die, that they find themselves extinct. It still happens today. But this Revelation begins with a series of letters to seven now dead churches. And each of those churches has a common message that they pass along to us. And it runs something like this, that you will either be an overcomer or you will be overcome. You'll be an overcomer in life or you will be overcome by life and by the enemy of our life. You'll be one or the other. And that's a message that each of these churches will pass on to us though they're long dead. But the first church, the one we're going to look at today, the church in the city, the ancient city of Ephesus, that church has a particular message for us. But I want you to let that sink in for just a moment, that you and I will either be overcomers or we will be overcome. Now, for the next few weeks, as we look at these letters from these long dead churches, we're going to follow the same outline every single time. We'll talk about the description that's mentioned. It's a description of Christ in the letter. There will be a commendation. There will be something that the church is doing right. There will be something that they're doing wrong. There will be a condemnation. There will be a warning. And there will be a promise. Let's see if you can pick up on what those things are. Chapter 2, Revelation, verse number 1. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible that says, The angel... To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, he says this, there's your description. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. Jesus is speaking to this church now. I know your deeds, I know your toil, I know your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. 
But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's a message to the church of Ephesus. And it contains a description, doesn't it, of Christ. It's a description that we saw already in the first chapter where Jesus appears on the scene. Suddenly, after being gone from the life of his friend John for 60 years, Christ appears to him. In one of his darkest hours, he's a political prisoner on the island of Patmos. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day, and suddenly he hears behind him a familiar voice, and he turns. But Jesus looks way different than he remembered him the last time he saw him. Old John is in his 90s now, and God is still using him in his advanced old age. But it's been a long time since he's heard from Jesus. It's been a long time since he's seen him. And now he sees him. Not as the rabbi going from village to village in Galilee, but he sees him as he really is glorified. And that's what that description is. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. We've already been told in the 20th verse of that first chapter, those seven stars are the angels or the messengers or the leaders, the pastors of those seven churches. Jesus is holding those leaders in his hand. He's holding them in his hand. They're that close. And he's walking among the seven golden lampstands. And those, we're told, are those seven churches. Every church, you see, is a light set upon a hill. It's to shine and not keep its light to itself. And those seven lampstands are the seven churches that these letters are written to. And Jesus, where do we find him? We find him in the very middle of the church, of the life of the church. Jesus is not far removed from his church. And he's holding the leaders of his church in his hand. And what all of that means is that Jesus, our Savior, he is very present with us. He doesn't leave us hanging out by ourselves. But he's with his people. He's extremely close. How close? Well, he's holding us. He's walking among us. The Bible indicates that Jesus is closer than beside us. He's within us. He's living his life. His very life, his resurrected life, Jesus is living his life in you. He's living inside your life. And then it launches into a commendation, something that they're doing right in verses 2 and 3. And there's a lot to commend in this church. Jesus is well aware of what they're involved in. I know what you do. I know that you work hard and you persevere. You keep your nose to the grindstone and you keep things in order. I know that you don't tolerate phonies and you don't let evil into your midst. You have not compromised and you're not phonies yourself. You have perseverance. You've endured and you've done it for me. And that's not been lost. You have not grown weary in your well-doing. All of that is a commendation to this church, but in verse 4, it's followed by the condemnation. There's something terribly wrong about this church that looks so terribly right. Verse number four, but I have this against you, 
that you've left your first love. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, how do you imagine that happened? That this church that's doing so many things right, they've fallen out of love with Jesus Christ. By first, it means primary, most important. They've allowed other things to take the place of the most important. Well, I'll let you think about that and come back to it in just a moment. But clearly, this is a serious charge. The Lord says, I have this against you. And it's serious, we know, because of the warning that follows in verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen, you've left your first love, and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and I'll remove your lampstand. Your church will close. You'll go out of existence unless you do repent. If you don't repent, if you don't turn, that's what repent means, you know. Repent is one of those words that's so freighted down with all kind of religious meaning. It's become jargon, and, and, and we, we don't pay attention to it much anymore. Repent. What's it mean? In our faith training, we learn that repent is really a very simple word. It means turn. If you're traveling down the road, you're the driver. And you have a navigator in the seat next to me, next to you. How many know what that's like? And the navigator says, turn. What are they asking you to do? Well, they're asking you to change directions. And that's what repent is. And the warning here is, because you've left your first love, you, you need to repent. You need to turn. There needs to be a course correction. You're going one way. You need to go another way. Grace is free. The unmerited favor of God that's given to us because of the cross, that is indeed free. But salvation, how many know, is not without cost. And it's not without cost to us. It will cost us something to follow Christ. It will cost us our plans. It will cost us our desires, perhaps. But the Lord wants us to turn. We've got to course correct. We've got to course correct. I have a book that I'm reading. I'm rereading. I read it 40 years ago, 41 years ago. It's called Attorney for the Damned. It's a case study of seven or eight trials where the great attorney, Clarence Darrow, was the lead attorney. And he was called in to do what nobody else could do. He was a phenomenal attorney, a trial attorney. When I was 17 years old, I read that book. I poured over that book, and I, and I thought, that's what I want to do. I, wa I want to be a trial attorney. I want to be a criminal attorney. I want to defend people that have been wrongly accused. And, and a cherry on top is, how good would it be to be paid to argue all day long? And so I seriously wanted to be a trial attorney. But about the same time, I, I got a, a, a scholarship, a full-ride scholarship to study commercial art. And I wanted to do that. I thought how great it would be to draw your whole life. <laughs> Create things. So I couldn't decide, do you want to be an attorney? Because if you become an attorney, you're not going to be a commercial artist. Do you want to be an artist? Or, because if you do that, you're not going to do this. I really couldn't decide. I had a very good job at the time. 
graduated high school and decided I'm going to work two or three years and sort it out. I was not a Christian. I was going to church. I'd begun to read the New Testament. I couldn't believe the New Testament because that was a story that was too good to be true. And if it's too good to be true, it's not true. But over the course of time, I became convinced that it is true. And one night, right before I had to pull the trigger on, are you going to take this, are you going to take this scholarship or not? Are you going to be an attorney or not? I came to Christ. And I instantly knew after I prayed that prayer, I was all alone. I knew you're not going to be an attorney. You're not going to be a commercial artist. There was a little bit of regret about that, but I will tell you that that course correction obviously changed the course of my life. And I would not enjoy the things I do today and would not have the life I do today had I not course corrected. Sometimes the Lord calls us to turn from things that appear to be good because he knows we're headed in a certain direction. The point is that in turning, and he tells this group here, you need to turn, you need to repent because you left your first love, in this case, a very serious charge. But the point is that in turning from something, you gain everything. I can tell you in turning away from those two choices early in my life, I have gained everything. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. You people need to turn, you need to repent. And then there's a promise in verse 7. Is it a promise to all? No, read it again. To him who overcomes, to that select group, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So is it a promise to all? No, it's a, it's a promise to overcomers. Again, you will either be an overcomer or you will be overcome by the enemy in the world. Now, there, there are many mega messages in this book of Revelation. There are messages to whole nations in this book. There are messages to people groups in this book. There's a message to the church of all the ages here. There, there are people that you will encounter here called the 24 elders. Those are people that represent all of God's people in all ages, past and future, the elders. And there's a message to all of God's people in this book. There's a message to all of creation in this book. At the same time that you meet those 24 elders that represent all believers of all time, you also meet some creatures called the living creatures. And they represent all of creation of all time. And there's a message even to all of creation in this book. Because it says that this is a, a story that goes out to those that are under the earth and above the earth and in the earth. Everything is covered. All creation is affected by the events in this book. Even up to and including the forever fate of Satan. There's a message for him in this book. There's even a message for hell in this book. Mega messages here are great, but the greatest message is one that is on a personal level, one directly to you. And that is you are either an overcomer with Christ or you'll be overcome by the enemy. There is no middle, middle ground. Now for the overcomer, it says here that we will be granted the tree of life. This is the first appearance of the tree of life since it disappeared at the very beginning. In the garden, in the original paradise, there was the tree of life. And because the people had disobeyed, 
and brought sin into the picture. They had to be deprived of the tree of life, and the tree of life was removed from them. Because had they eaten it, you eat the tree of life and you live forever. And if they'd eaten of the tree of life with sin in their life, they could never have come back to Christ. They could never have made their way back to God. They would have lived an eternity apart from God and how awful that will be. And so the tree of life disappears in Scripture, but it shows up again here. It's back. And we're told that if we are in the company of the overcomers, we'll be granted to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, the tree of life. It comes back again. Late in this book, I'll just jump ahead for you. The tree of life appears in all of its fullness. And what it means is when the tree of life comes back, he starts creating again. He begins to do new things again. I don't even begin to know what that means. But the most exciting thing is the word says that in this new creation, we get to have a part we get to have a hand in helping him with the creation. The tree of life, it's shown up again. It's back. It's amazing. We get to be sharers of it. It's amazing. But where it is, is the real hook of the story. Where is the tree of life? It's in the paradise of God. And if the tree is in the paradise of God, and we get to take of the tree, then we're in the paradise of God, you see. John Milton, the great English poet, wrote a poem, Paradise Lost, but this is paradise regained. This is paradise restored for the overcomer, you see. Let's begin to wrap things up. What, what does this church at Ephesus, long dead now, what does the church at Ephesus have to say to the church at Fairfax? I think it's got at least one thing to say. Go back to verse 4. Christ still speaking, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That verse, to me, lands with a thud in my spirit. I have this against you, says the Lord, you have left your first love. I cannot think of a harder statement to hear from Christ. And I think it's so hard because of the one who's saying it, I have this against you, you have left your first love, me. He says it to an entire church, and we might be tempted to slough that off. Exactly who's he talking about there? He says it to an entire church, but what he says to the entire church is true of the church because it's true of many individuals in that church who have individually left their first love. One version says it this way, you lost the love that you had at first. You lost the love that you had at first. I think that's going a little easy on us. We lose things all the time, don't we? Keys. All kind of things. I can't get off keys because that's what I lose all the time. <laughs> and so it's really not that big a deal. Oh, it happens all the time. You lost your first love. But another version says it this way. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You walked away. You abandoned it. You see why the strong word of blame now? I have this against you. You have abandoned 
your first love. You have deserted me, another one says. So these people are now being forced to admit that Christ has lost first place in my heart because I have walked away from him. A very early English translation says it this way, thy first love thou didst let go. Paul had a lot to do with this church at Ephesus. He had founded this church. In Acts 20, it talks about a cheerful goodbye. It broke his heart to leave this church. It broke their heart because they knew that they would never see him again. And he talks about what a loving church this was and how it had spilled over into his life and it had affected him. He had warned at that time, be careful because wolves will come in and strife will set in and division will be introduced and strife and division had come in along with the wolves and it had changed this great overflowing love in that church. The people had somehow by this time, by John's time, had grown loveless toward each other and loveless toward Christ, worst of all. Now, you couldn't question their loyalty. Oh, no. Again, look in verse 6. He says, yet this you do have. He tells them you have left your first love, and he warns them what will happen if they don't change their ways. But he doesn't want to leave them on that note, so he says, yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Nicolaitans, that was a heresy. It was a heresy of compromise that said, hey, I'm free in Christ. It's okay then if I compromise with the world. I don't need to live any differently than the world around me. And so it was a way to bow to the social customs of the age and still say, I am a Christian. It's okay. That's the Nicolaitans. But they had not fallen for that kind of easy believism that cost me nothing salvation that many people fall for today. They did not fall for that. You could not question their loyalty to Christ. It's thought by people that study these things that the Ephesian church was probably the most prominent church in all the New Testament in its day. As I said, it was founded by Paul. This is the only place where he spent a large amount of time. Three years he stayed with them to get it off the ground. Later on, it became the home church of the Apostle Philip. And then the great apostle John who write, writes the gospel and who writes the little letters and writes this revelation, he was involved with the Ephesian church as well. And because he was the caretaker of Jesus' mother from the foot of the cross, it became the home church of Mary, the mother of Jesus too. And so it was in all probability the most prominent church of its day. And to all appearances, it is a leading church. It is standing for what's right. Jesus commends them for that. And it's enduring hardship, and it is serving, and it is loyal, and it is busy. That's the way it looked from the outside, but something inside was missing. I believe words mean something. And Jesus says here, you have left your first love. And that word means abandonment. 
You have abandoned me. But it also includes the result of, listen, long neglect. I didn't mean to lose my first love. But through long neglect, that is where I find myself. I've lost my first love. They gladly gave the Lord their service. There was no qualms about that. But they did not give themselves. This message is really not going to be finished until we get back together tonight at 6 o'clock because in the fifth verse, he says, Remember where you've fallen from and repent, turn, and do the deed you did at first. And that's what we're going to begin with tonight. We're going to begin with the three stages of restoration there, three stages in life transformation, three stages in what we call conversion, turning around. And that's remember and repent and do the works you did at first. They were doing a lot and they were doing much that was good, but they had lost sight of the two things that are closest to the heart of Christ, the poor and the lost they had lost sight of. And then they lost their first love. Well, tonight, we're going to follow those three stages. Remember, repent, and do the works you did at first. We're going to do that tonight. And we're going to return to our first love. So again, please do not stay home or stay away tonight. Please. But we can begin now. We can begin now returning to our first love. We don't have to wait. There was an old man in a an art gallery, a picture gallery in London. And there were not many people in the gallery that day as he stood in front of a huge, beautifully executed picture of Christ on the cross. And he stood there and he looked and he looked and he looked. And he began to weep. And then in the stillness of that art gallery where the metal and the stone and the sterile atmosphere caused echoes, he began to say out loud, I love him. I do love him. And it was easily heard by all the people in the place. Others in that gallery heard the old man, and they were moved by what they heard him say. And so they gathered near to look at the picture that he was looking at. Christ on the cross. And as that old man stood to the side of the picture, the tears running down the deep folds in his face and his hat in his hand, one stranger came up and laid his hand on the old man's shoulder and said, I love him too, brother. And seeing it, another person did the same thing, and a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and on until there was a little knot of people, strangers, who stood there before the Savior confessing their deep love. That's us. That's what we do. That's us. Together, we're strangers, but we stand before the Savior and we confess our deep love for Him. I think it's time we got back to our first love, don't you? You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.